Good. Hey folks, welcome back. This is Elliot and Andy with the Pearl Pearls Almanac. And you can find us on Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can find us on Patreon. If you're enjoying what we're doing over here and you'd like to help us cover the cost of hosting some of these podcasts. We don't explicitly offer any of our traditional content focused on specific goals of this podcast to our Patreons in terms of limited access or anything like that right now. Knowledge is for everyone. But we have started up a Patreon-only miniseries called The Prologues, during which we do some critiques on various ecological subject matters. We've also included clips of this entire series up on the Patreon as well, so if you want to hear uh, some stuff from all the episodes, go check it out. We've released one episode that was asked by popular demand for public consumption, so that's a good place to start um, and see if you'd like to hear more. On top of this content, we've got stickers available, and we're including some footage from Andy's farm, putting the theory we're talking about into practice. So if you want to see what's going on over there, check out some animals, some ducks, some Mike's Landic sheep, check out the Patreon. Any support we can get to offset our actual costs, we fully and wholeheartedly appreciate, so please check us out. We're also on Instagram and Facebook and uh, all the other forms of social media if you want to follow us over there as well. Supposedly, Elliot is going to start a Twitch for us, but I have yet to see that, Elliot. I mean, I'm not going to start a Twitch. I'm not, like, Which would be more beneficial? Is it Twitch or uh, Discord? Because in Discord, we could have meaningful discussion. Twitch is sort of... Uh, I'm not here to entertain you fuckers. Yes, you are. I am. He's, that's the only reason I keep him around. <laughs> I, don't, I don't drive for nobody. Um, no. Um, yeah, I don't know. I We would have to have video-worthy like content to do a Twitch. I feel like for a discussion, Discord might be easier to manage. So, I thought we were going to do the Discord for our Patreons when we get had enough. So that's a future project. But We'll see. Yeah, we got to have content for Twitch. That's what I'm saying. I don't know if we have Twitch content yet. Maybe they just want to see your face. I doubt that. Maybe. Highly. Highly. He's black. He's also starting to go a little gray. Like a silver fox. So. Meow. Isn't that the sound foxes make? I don't know. I don't know how to. <laughs> you can call you black dynamite. Don't do it. It's trademarked, motherfucker. We're too, <laughs> too broke to get sued. <laughs> Please take my debt. Go for it. No, that's not how it works. I'm so stupid. Well, anyways, uh, in this episode, we spent some time talking with Elena and Kara from the Brooklyn Lace Guild. We chat about their work making the age-old practice of lace accessible and relevant in today's world. And uh, we, we talk a little bit about, specifically, the current state of the clothing industry, how that relates both to capitalism and the connection that raw materials in the natural world play in this very dynamic space and um, what the role of something that seems so uh, slow to develop like lace is and where uh, in industry fits into that in terms of the ability to mass produce and whether or not that's a good or bad thing or maybe a little bit of both. Right. And it totally takes uh, craft and um, for lack of a better word, hobby i'll I'll say passion because these ladies definitely have a passion for the craft that they do and um it sort of reminds you you know if you do what you love you won't work a day in your life they work super hard at what they do but i don't think to them it didn't seem like they were overworked it seemed like they were you know uh passionate and 
driven. Yeah, what's the like lit a, like a fire like satisfied? A, yeah, like a they they seem fulfilled in the work that they were doing because not only was it something they enjoy doing, but um, it, it's learning from age old lessons and also like bringing a new school approach to it. Yeah, yeah, it was a great conversation, and I think you guys will really enjoy it. Elena and Kara, thanks so much for coming on to talk with us today about this really unique project that you're working on. So can you tell me where the idea of the Brooklyn Lace Guild came from? Thank you so much for having us. Um, This is Elena speaking, by the way. We're really excited to be here. Brooklyn Lace Guild is an organization that is dedicated to the preservation of making lace by hand. We are obviously based in Brooklyn, although during the pandemic, we've actually expanded. So we have membership across the country. But essentially, I started looking for a lace instructor myself, particularly in bobbin lace, about 10 years ago. And, you know, using the tool of Google, there weren't that many lace makers online, and I couldn't really find anyone. And there are guilds, there are many different lace guilds in the U.S., but they tended to be um, less in major cities, actually. So there's three guilds in New Jersey, there's one up in Ithaca, but they were all a little bit too far for me to get to. So... Eventually, I actually traveled to Slovenia to take my first lace classes because that was the first lace school that came up when I Googled lace school in like 2011. Um, (laughs) There's a small town of Idria. It's like a little village up a mountain with a 14th century castle and they've been making lace there for hundreds of years. So that that was really went straight to the source. (laughs) Right. Highly recommended. Yeah. Right. So New Jersey was in... I guess it was too difficult to get to, but once you got into it, it made sense to go to Slovenia to learn how to do it. So that's, that's awesome. Yeah, that's a great start. That's a great start. <laughs> yeah. People do say, well, you know, if New Jersey's too far, why did you go all the way to Slovenia? But they have an annual lace festival. Um, that was really, that was what really sold it for me. And I had never been to Europe before. So it was my first time traveling. That's awesome. Um, but then when I came back, I took my first lace classes there and I was totally hooked. It's one of those things that's, that people tend to love or hate. So I've had students like tear their lace pillow apart and run out of my class practically or people that fall in love and become obsessed like Kara and I and, you know, then dedicate their life to it. Um, but basically, when I came back, I wanted to continue and I wanted to have a community, but I didn't really know where to begin. So I ended up applying for a grant through um, FIT. I was in their textiles program and I also was studying history and they have a grant for one student a year to fund a research project. So I was, I was very lucky to, to win for a project to study lace making for four months um, in 13 or so different countries in Europe in 2015. And part of my proposal was that when I came back, I would start a guild. So that was sort of the seedling of Brooklyn Lace Guild, but, um, I have to say the thing I was most nervous about on that trip was not that I would be able to learn how to make lace or the traveling part, but the starting a guild. Um, but our first meeting, um, my co-founders were the only two other lace makers I knew, Kaylin Garcia and Devin Thine, and 10 people showed up and today we're at like over 30 members. So, um, it's, that's pretty exciting for yeah, a lace guild. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. So the term guild, um, you, it sounds like it's pretty common in the lace community. You know, obviously it is a throwback to a, a piece of history. 
it does it mean anything different to you in terms of like if you called it like the lace collective or community or some Co-op other term or yeah. any other word that you could throw out yeah that's that's a great question and it's interesting when i thought about this that you know lace guilds lace was historically not made in guilds guild textile guilds were professional organizations that were predominantly run and organized by men with professional and formal apprenticeship systems, whereas lace making was generally more of a cottage industry um, and was less formally organized or was organized in schools and sort of philanthropic organizations like orphanages and that sort of thing, or it was made in the home. So it was more informal than, than other textile crafts historically. So it's, it's funny that in the 20th century, in like the 1970s, there was a big revival of lace making, not just in the US, but globally, and many people use the guild terminology. So I think that that initial wave of this, you know, lace has gone through many ups and downs and, you know, declines and revivals, but the big revival that we're still riding on was in the 70s. And that was these were many guilds that still are around today, like International Organization of Lace, which is the U.S. umbrella organization, and OIDFA, which is out of Europe, but is more global. But we're, today we're more made up of hobbyists. So it's, it's definitely, it's kind of a funny shift. But we, people tend to use guilds for these collectives today, even though they function differently than historical guilds. Mm-hmm. Sure. That's cool. I think like as I'll speak as a straight man that I think of lace as something that's traditionally like a high fashion and not really something that applies in like what I think of like clothing. And generally when I see it and it might speak to my income level or whatever, I usually see it in like those cheap imitations um, that like fall apart as soon as, you know, somebody puts them on. Uh, I'm kind of curious because of your experience with it and the fact that you obviously know a lot more about that industry than I do today, what kind of role it has in fashion uh, today and in the future? Well, I have to say, I, I think you have a great understanding of of lace as historically being more luxurious and today being sort of a cheap imitation because I think that I often encounter this perception as many lace makers do that, you know, machine-made textiles are somehow um, linearly improving upon handmade techniques and that handmade textiles and things are like somehow equivalent to amateur when really handmade historical things were super professional. So I think, you know, there's, there is a little bit of a disconnect that there, but, um, you know, of course this is the, the whole fashion industry is changing these days as people start to become more aware of the kind of garment processes and the fact that things have become so disposable. So I think there's more of an emphasis on um, sustainability, of course, and that sort of thing that's that's changing. I don't know if Kara, I, I don't want to talk too much. I, I would love to hear your opinion on this as someone who's more on the fashion side of things and I'm more on the history side of things. I think that also something that I was thinking about with what role it really plays today and like the, the difference in how handmade lace and how machine-made lace are really utilized today is I think that machine-made lace in a way kind of gives us a weird bit of freedom um, as handmade lace makers. I think that because there is this ability now to make all of this machine-made lace and it's not something that 
or the use of it on garments isn't as prioritized as it as it once was because it's something that can be made so fast and easily now that that really gives handmade lace makers a lot of freedom to really experiment with the actual technique and to do really whatever they want with it. Um, there's not as big of a demand for the time of a skilled lace maker at this point to be spent on making a trim for a garment when they could be doing something that they really are interested and excited about doing that's something bizarre and strange. And so even though I think that of course, in a way it's, it's saddening like for it to be so easily made now. It, it also is something that I think is really beneficial in the long run for a lot of people that do make lace. Commercially made lace sort of opens up the market for handmade lace to be made as a hobby. Yeah, I, th I think that it opens it up for it to be made as a hobby and also for the actual technique to be more expanded upon mm -hmm. because it's such a, it, it's such a, there's so many different possibilities Intricate. with the actual technique itself. Yeah. Um, and so I think that instead of just having it be all very linear and very, oh, it has to be used for a, a trim on a garment or it has to be used for a motif on a, on a dress, it could be, it could be used for a sculpture. Like there are people that are doing absolutely bizarre things now with, with handmade lace that you never would have seen otherwise. Um, like if machine made lace hadn't opened up that possibility. Yeah, I, you know, I think it sounds like machine made lace uh, is kind of filling in the void of, well, not even a void, but the, I guess the time void will say that people that worked with lace uh, got sucked into doing the monotony and it frees up folks that want to do lace into the, the areas of specialization that machines, maybe they could do it, but we don't, we don't want to invest the energy into doing that or whatever. Uh, and it allows people's artistic ability to kind of take the, the lead on uh, the industry uh, in terms of the non-machine made components. Yeah. Like a separation between assembly line and the craftsmanship that sure. you're going for when you started the guild. Yeah, and that kind of brings us back to this conversation of before we had started recording, talking about the idea of craftsmanship and craft, and the I guess the growing phenomena of millennials and even Zoomers that are finding an interest in returning to a lot of these practices that our ancestors had done, not because it was something they wanted to do, but because that was just part of being human. What do you think is driving this return to craft, I guess, to either of you? And do you see any signs of it slowing down at this point? Well, I'm a millennial, Elena, and Kara is a Gen Z. So I feel like we can we can both answer, speak to this um, differently, but I think there's a lot of overlap there for sure. I personally, I think it makes so much sense that when we've, you know, entered this phase of, you know, late stage capitalism where we can click a button on our computer and have clothing delivered to our house in hours, you know, it, and people are so detached from the process of making. Additionally, in a global pandemic where we've all been isolated and the virtual world has become, you know, one of our only outlets to connect with other people, that I think it, when, you know, we've been driven to this one extreme of the digital world and of, you know, consumer culture, that, that the other one would inevitably, inevitably be driven to take off on the other end of the spectrum. So it makes so much sense to me that that younger people and and lots of people of all generations are being drawn back to like this sort of tactile hands-on process. Um, and for me personally, what I am drawn to about lace is that, you know, it is this incredibly time-consuming thing that you have to be really dedicated to, to make and 
to quote a 16th century Englishman, it doth neither hide nor heat, um, but it doth adorn. So it's really just this, I don't mean to say this in a pejorative way, but it's, you know, it is beauty for beauty's sake. It's this decorative, frivolous element of, you know, ornamentation. So to have the ability to dedicate our time to making this by our choice and not, you know, working 15 hours a day um, in the historical, you know, context that it was made, you know, is, I think, there's something really incredible about that. And, and I know as a lace maker that I feel very connected to lace makers of yore. And when I'm like embodying this practice of making these motions of making bobbin lace, I know Kara has thoughts on this too. Sure. But a lot it, yeah. And it sounds like um, to simplify, it sounds like it's nice to have nice things. And I totally agree with that a hundred percent. And to make them yourself, there's right. nothing more satisfying and it, and it teaches value. I know there, you know, I had my first, very first experience of growing vegetables last year. I live in a little apartment in Brooklyn, so it's it's not accessible to me most of the time. And it just, every bite of food becomes so much more valuable when you've grown it yourself. Every textile becomes just so, you know. It has a depth. You really appreciate it. Absolutely. Yeah. And a machine can never capture that. So a skilled a skilled eye of a of a lace maker will always be able to differentiate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and Kara, what did you think? What do you think? One of the things, at least for me, and this is definitely more like a um, I, I don't know if this is continuous among um, other people in my generation, but I think that something that it's really done for me is it's really allowed me to interact with people outside of my generation, and I think that that's something that. I know that I was severely lacking in before getting into making lace because so much, even though we have so much commercial, uh, even though we have so much um, communication uh, through online channels, a lot of it because of algorithms is really condensed into very specific little groups. And so even though you have the ability to communicate with so many people, you really only communicate with very few people it seems. And so when I started making lace and I started actually getting into it, I was doing it by myself and it was fine. But then when I ended up actually joining a guild and going and meeting all of these amazing people from so many different generations and so many different groups, I, it was just amazing because I'd never had anything in common with anyone else um, that was of a different generation. And um, it, it was just a really amazing experience. And that's something that's really kept me staying in different um, lay skills and actually continuing doing this is just because I really treasure the relationships and communication that I'm able to have with this community. And it's something that's so niche. And so it, it's like you're spending so much time dedicated to this one thing that you have to really, really like doing, you know? And so no matter what differences you, you have with these people because of um, like, because of your age or where you come from or anything, um, it's like, you all know that you love that and that that's something that, that really holds you all together. And that is, that's just become really, really special to me. So I think that that's one of the main things um, for me. And then, and, and I think that that probably is the case for a lot of other people, just because it, it really does feel like it's very hard to find just such a diverse group of people, you know? 
Um, it's really nice. What was it in particular, I guess, that kind of made you want to do something like this? Was it just you were always a, a interested in lace or did it have to do more with the tactile piece that you wanted to do something with your hands or? I, I think that a lot of it really came from the fact that I had absolutely no idea how the majority of things in the world are made. Um, because I think, um, like I've, I, I've grown up in a very suburban, just like things are just kind of there and you don't really ever see where things actually come from. And, and it's just like, these things just kind of exist. Um, and so I actually ended up, I, I went to, uh, to school at Parsons in New York city for fashion design. And so one of the questions that kept on getting brought up was, where things are made and how how we actually make the things that we design. And that was something that I really hadn't ever thought of before of like the sources of things. Um, and so in thinking about that, that was really what got me thinking about how lace especially was made because it's such an intricate detailed thing. And eventually I stumbled across bobbin lace and I was just like, oh, this is insane. I have to know how to do this. <laughs> so that's how I got into it. <laughs> I, I feel like our podcast, I'd say nearly half of the listeners are probably Gen Z, which is really interesting mm -hmm. because I was shocked that that many people that young cared about farm like or uh, agriculture. <laughs> It's been really, I guess, eye opening in that sense that there seems to be a lot of young people that really want to know and they almost don't even know where to start. And, the, you know, mm -hmm. it, one of the challenges I think that I faced as I kind of ventured into new parts of farming that I wasn't exposed to growing up was that if you go on the Internet, there's so much information that not only is it overwhelming, but a majority of it is not very good because everyone mm -hmm. is trying to monetize things like YouTube. And it, it creates a lot of you know, conflicting information and ultimately kind of shuts people out. And um, mm -hmm. I, I'm sure you guys kind of see it on your end, too, where although I'm sure it's yeah. a lot less. Yeah, it, it's just it's really interesting. And it's really uh, hopeful that so many Gen Z folks are really following the steps of their great grandparents who had been kind of living that lifestyle before. And all that kind of changed back in the 40s and 50s. So. I, I want to bring this back to this idea of sustainability that you brought up and kind of the practical applications of technology. How does lace kind of fit into like you were talking about sustainability? How does it kind of fit into that? Um, I guess that I'll go for this one. So something that I ended up doing for my um, and this is just an example of one of the many ways that I think anyways that lace can be used in sustainable practices is for my final year in college, actually, because I was so fascinated by lace making, um, I, after spending the summer looking at the actual technique and all of the different building blocks that go into it, I realized that it really had a lot of potential in making zero waste designs. So like when you make a garment, you start out with a rectangular piece of fabric and you cut into it and then you're left with all of these scraps that don't ever get used and they're all thrown away. But with lace, you're able to make whatever kind of shape you want and whatever kind of pattern you want on the inside and anything like that. Um, and so what I ended up doing for my thesis collection was I made a collection of garments that were entirely made from bobbin lace techniques, but instead of using thread, I used yarn. When you do something like that, and when you get really, really 
into how everything is made like oh how am I going to make this like pattern piece for a bodice out of lace and make it actually possible to be done by me in a matter of like a month um when you do something like that you also get really really into where the materials that you're using come from because you're going to be spending a lot of time with them and you want to know that that what you're using is actually going to work so in having the ability to actually um make my own textiles through lace, I was able to also source all of my materials locally and choose what exact kinds of animals I wanted the, um, the fiber to be from. So I know where everything that I used for my thesis came from and where it was grown. And Did you so, spin the yarn yourself or no? I'm just kind of curious. I didn't spin the yarn myself. There's, I have some hand spun from some friends of mine. There's, there's a surprising amount of um, Angora rabbit farmers in Western Massachusetts, which is where I'm, which is where I live. And so one of the Angora rabbit people that I, that I'm friends with, she, um, she hand spins all of her yarn. So I have a bunch of that in certain pieces from my collection. But, um, but. That's just like one of the the many different ways that I think lace can be utilized in in a sustainable way. I think um, you know there's there's a lot of other different projects that a lot of different um, lace makers have done as well that I think are really inspiring for sustainability. Like I, I don't I, I don't remember her name off the top of my head, but I'm sure that Elena knows. <laughs> um, uh, there there's another person um, who graduated the same year that I did who did a series of uh, lace, bobbin lace pieces that were made from recycled electrical wires. You know, there's there's a lot of different things that lace can, that the actual base technique of bobbin lace can be used for that are really, really exciting. And I think are, seem to be all quite new-ish, like within a, a very recent uh, span of time, but they're all very, exciting and and there are so many that seem to be focused on sustainable practices that I think that there's a lot more that will probably develop as time goes on. The designer is uh, Alexandra Sipa. She's a Romanian mm -hmm. bob and lace maker that learned from her grandmother and I think in an interview she said that she had been her she had gone through so many pairs of headphones that month and they kept breaking and she saw the colorful wires like protruding from them and decided to make bobbin lace with them. So that became the basis for her collection. She's since gone on to do different projects, um, which Kara is working on as well. But it's so it's, it's very exciting because actually surprisingly, even at the couture level, there's been almost a total lack of any sort of handmade lace in the fashion industry for a number of decades. So in the in the last few years, there's really been a noticeable shift in these techniques starting to be reincorporated into the fashion industry, which is very exciting. So houses like fashion houses like Dior and Fendi have used heritage crafts and supported local lace communities um, in a few recent collections, which is very exciting. But of course, this is very, you know, like very costly and, and this is not accessible to most people. So um, to see the sort of younger generation approach these things in a new way, rather than doing the sort of more traditional aesthetic of lace, but um, with innovative materials and this sort of like making to shape that you can, that is possible with bobbin lace, I think is, is really exciting. So I think there's a lot of potential for it in the future. And I hope that more people 
you know, learn about the technique because I think the, the major issue with the lace community, I think it's been a, a little, the opposite problem that you had um, when trying to learn about farming is that lace, the lace community is not very visible online or wasn't until the last year. Um, and so for people like myself and Kara, when we were looking for these lace makers and communities and teachers, it's really hard to find any information at all. Um, and, you know, many people hear I make lace and say, oh, isn't that a dead art or isn't that a lost art or something? But the reality is there are hundreds of thousands of lace makers around the world. They just don't use the Internet for the most part. So Yeah. And so, know. right. And so I think that fully answers the question because we asked how um, lace can be sustainable moving forward. And it sounds like it's too, the answer is twofold. It sounds like it's always been sustainable and it seems like the revival comes into play with sort of innovating the handmade process of how it can be made and sort of um, letting it evolve into, like you said, the no waste uh, design for clothing and, and other items. And also um, the new materials that are going into making the lace itself. It sounds like that's the sustainable part is sort of upgrading the materials that we can make it with and, and seeing what the process can, how it can evolve to move forward in order to, you know, stay relevant in fashion. Uh, one of the challenges that I personally have as a farmer that tries to essentially use as little inputs as possible comes around this idea that a lot of the things that I'm trying to do, the there was never it was never written down because it was so commonly known, uh, like things like using uh, tree hay, which is like using branches for hay, um, which is what farmers traditionally did because they weren't clearing acres of grass. And now there's a lot of research going into trying to figure out how like what species are edible? How do you do it without killing the tree? All these different things that were so common knowledge not that long ago. Despite that, we're trying to relearn it. Do you guys see a lot of that in terms of lace? So lace, I think one thing that's interesting about it is that a very skilled maker can look at a historic piece of lace and figure out how to replicate the pattern. Of course, this is very time consuming and takes a high level of skill, but there are people um, like one of our guild members, Karen Thompson, who um, is a volunteer at the Smithsonian in DC. And she's been working on a project taking um, Ipswich Bobbin Lace, which was a historic lace making industry, the only hand lace industry in the US out of Ipswich, Massachusetts. Represent. And it's, yes, yes, Massachusetts <laughs> is where it's at. I, I mean, clearly with the lace industry and everything. So, but she basically has, they have some pieces in the collection at the Smithsonian, they're black silk and they're really beautiful. Um, and she's been she's been creating patterns based on the original pieces um, and and teaches these classes as well. So so there is this ability to kind of work backwards from a finished piece of lace and figure out how it was made. However, of course, that doesn't tell us everything we need to know. Um, and there are lots of conversations and debates about these historic skills. So one of the big things, which I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with, because it's also, I think, based in, in Massachusetts, is, you know, the materials that we have today are so different as lace makers, because, again, the industrialization of, you know, textile processes has actually made the quality of linen threads, for example, which is historically the most traditional for bobbin lace, or most widespread, that has really declined. So there isn't the the size of thread that you could get in 18th century Belgium when linen thread was spun by hand is, you know, it's about 10 times finer than what any 
machine can spin today, even with specialist lace thread makers out of Belgium, because human hands are so much more delicate um, and attuned to, you know, the delicate flax fibers and that sort of thing. So there are groups like New England Flax and Linen, who you probably have heard of, that are working to sort of specifically figure out how these super fine linen threads were grown and processed with like historical seeds and I mean they're just doing such cool stuff so you know there there's a lot there to explore still yeah I kind of started falling into the rabbit hole of like making clothing when we got Icelandic sheep and um, I was like okay well I can get milk and make cheese and I can you know eat some of them when uh, the time comes that we need to reduce the flock and um, what am I going to do with this with all the uh, the wool Like, I don't want to just waste it. And then my wife was like, oh, you know, you could spin it. And then, like, you go down the rabbit hole of learning how to spin. And, (laughs) like, it's like that itself is an art that I have yet to figure out or even really understand for that matter. And I think it speaks to, you know, the, the complexity of... You know, you're talking about linen, which comes from flax, and there's uh, a number of flax plants. Uh, which ones make the better flax? I don't know. Or make the better linen? I'm not sure. And I'm sure there's a lot of debate about which species and how to do that. And, um, you know, it, it's this very nuanced, I mean, it's an art. And that's what art is, is understanding those finer details that tie all these different uh, components together. But, you know, one of the things that really came or became clear as I was like, you know, what would be cool is if I made my own sweater out of my own sheep wool. And then, you know, you start doing the hourly rate and then what it costs to buy a loom or uh, not a loom, um, uh, the the wheel, what's it called? The treadle. Is that right? The, the spinning wheel? Yes. Or is or, it just the yes. spinning wheel? Yes. Just called the spinning wheel. Oh, yeah. d- I'm overthinking Duh. it then. But I, I started like adding it up and it like came out to like, if I was making... Uh, minimum wage would cost at least two thousand dollars to make a sweater it would be a nice sweater i mean if i didn't screw it up too much like it's you know healthy sheep that are giving me wool and it's a good quality wool because it's icelandic but still like that that's you know, no one's gonna pay two thousand dollars for a sweater even if i was like that sheep over there made it um no you know it, no one cares uh and I, I think that speaks to the value of like taking the technology we have to apply it appropriately without diminishing the quality of the art that goes into it. So kind of what do you think about like where, you know, we've kind of been talking about there's this role of uh, mechanization versus the role of the art itself. And um, you had brought up the the very real cost component and making it accessible to people and kind of how is there any way to really tie all those things together so that you can kind of make everyone happy? That's a really great question. And that is definitely the biggest question for you know, creating lace garments, I think, for for makers and designers is because lace was historically, I think, arguably the most costly textile, like a pair of super fine lace cuffs could take two years to produce. We have records of this in, you know, historical archives and that sort of thing. So, you know, not all lace is that fine, but it, it it's it's definitely, you know, very costly. But I think one thing that does help is that, um, you know, we we sort of have this romantic notion of historical textiles as all being these sort of like homespun products that were all made start to finish in like one home. And that the pre-industrial format was very much like individual 
people worked on their own, like made all their own clothes and made all their own food and did all their own. But really, there, as I'm sure you know, of course, it was much more community oriented and there would be one person who would be skilled in one step and, and another in another step. And even within lace making, there are kinds of lace um, where you can break down into different steps. So, you know, you can, you can have give out pattern motifs to multiple different people and have them working simultaneously um, on different patterns, for example, or, you know, so it can be more networked. And this is still, of course, we're talking pre-industrial. So it's, it's still a cottage industry type format. So I think there's, there's somewhere there's a happy medium. I know um, Kara has, has more experience actually working with lace makers. So I'm sure she has some, some great input on this as well. Um, yeah, I think that also something that, uh, so when I was also working on, on these massive bobbin lace pieces, um, I, I knew that it would be like impossible to make them so that they could actually be, um, be sold uh, just because of how much time went into them. And I think that a, a lot of the reason why is because it was just me doing it. Um, and so I'm in contact with several different communities throughout the world that that make bobbin lace for a living like it, it's what they do and they're they've been doing it since they were so young and they're all so skilled at it it's it just it blows my mind like how fast they can make things um, and they work on them as a community and so everything is is really done with a collective effort and I think that what makes it a lot different from what I was doing and then also what makes it so that it, it could be an actual means of production is that it is, it's multiple people doing it and they, and, and they're able to do what they want to do. Like, it's not something that's, uh, that's, that's forced. It's like they're choosing to do it and they're incredibly passionate about it. And with that said, they also are able to, to charge how, however much they want, like however much they feel their work is, is worth. And I think that that's very different from the way that a lot of things were made historically. Um, it's, it's something that I think really is working for them now. And in saying that also, it's because it's really all that they do, they, they also don't charge a huge, huge amount because they're so skilled at it. And because there's so many people working on, on one thing, they get really good at the individual parts of that. I also just on that note, I think that that also one of the main reasons why it's been so hard to find a way to make it accessible has been because a lot of these communities have been very isolated from a lot of other people because it hasn't been something that that has had a lot of communication with like if, if so. The, one of the communities that I work with is, is in very rural Brazil, and they would never have any kind of communication with anyone that was living in like New York that was trying to design things for, uh, for, for a, a brand um, without, without the proper communication channels. And so now because of things like, like WhatsApp, um, we're able to communicate with them and it's amazing. And so I think in a way, one of the best happy mediums that there is with this handmade and uh, current technology is just communication and being able to actually be in contact with all of these different people. 
you know, because otherwise I, I don't think that there would be as much coordination and, and it wouldn't be as possible to actually make in a, in a timely manner or to actually have things planned out in the way that they need to be so that they can be at least somewhat accessible. Yeah, I, I think that speaks to the fact that specialization exists even within the lace community and that specialization allows mm -hmm. for more accessibility and um, self-determination for those people that are involved in the industry, as well as for people that are uh, interested in supporting that industry as well, uh, whether it's buying clothes or whatever. So I'm kind of curious, I'm sure you guys know a ton about the fashion industry and the clothing industry as a whole, which I know nothing about. Is something like what you guys are doing common in other parts of the industry? Or is this kind of a really niche type thing? Yeah, that's... Do you, can you expand on what you mean by something like what we're doing? Uh, like community? having like, like this kind of collective community, the guild type idea where um, folks are coming together to try to kind of keep these crafts or keep a similar craft alive. You know, it's interesting because I think there there are so many textile guilds and there are so many people that are interested in tra traditional craft, but there is somewhat, there has been somewhat of a divide between those groups maybe in the fashion industry um, but I do see this shifting a little bit, you know, where now you see in fashion upcycling is everywhere. There's a lot of people particularly using, you know, quilts and these sorts of things to make jackets and like, you know, vintage linens and that sort of thing, which is fantastic. And I'm a big fan of upcycling as a, as a sustainable method of making fashion. However, you know, handmade heirloom quilts are our finite resource and many of them are works of art in their own right so some of them should still be preserved and I hope that we don't you know run out of them or burn through them for me at least I see more parallels in well not more parallels but I I'm really interested in not just the sustainable fashion production and a way to approach that but also really in the mending and care movements so there's the there's been a big movement in visible mending also, um, which is really fantastic. Uh, one of my friends and former graduate cohort students, um, Kate Seculis just wrote a book on mending and there's also the organization Fashion Revolutions founder just wrote, a, which is a sustainable fashion organization just wrote another book on mending. So this has become a really hot topic. And I think, you know, focusing on mending and caring for clothing and having this education of how to darn and sew on a button and how to replace a zipper means that we can actually support more of these sustainable brands and these that make more expensive clothing. So I think it's, they're important parallels because they, they support each other, you know, in order for people to be able to afford these more um, expensive sustainable garments like handmade lace clothing, we need people to also know how to take care of them and mend them so that they don't get rid of things as quickly and so that they buy fewer things. So I think it's, but I really feel like we're moving in a positive direction in that way, which is, which is wonderful. Um, so just working to make things as accessible as possible, of course. Right. And I think we keep circling back to how sustainable the, the work that the Lace Guild and the, the concept is when you, when you talk about increasing the quality of clothes, like if it does take Andy, you know, $2,000 and, you know, however forever, many hours it makes to, to make that sweater, <laughs> if he can fix that sweater and, and wear it to the point where, you know, that $2,000 is justified. And I'm not really sure how long that would take, but just assume that he could mend and keep that sweater viable to the point where it makes sense to 
make a sweater every 15 years, then it, it makes sense to, to do that. And it seems like it would be sustainable rather than buying a factory stamped, pressed, made sweater out of cheap materials once every year. Yeah, I mean, we could talk about the way the clothing industry has gone in this direction of what is it like micro seasons now, I think where it's like every week technically is considered a new fashion season or something like that. Yeah, it's ridiculous. It's yeah, really and like, crazy. You, know, you think about the quality of shirts that come out today and they're just, it, it can't be sustainable the way we're living. You know, while we might not be able to change the system, we do need to have an idea of what we can do, what an alternative can look like for when that day comes that this stops working. You know, I think it's not hard to see that things are not, that this can't happen. The way we're living can't continue forever. And, um, it's like hot potato. Who's going to be the one uh, holding the potato? Right. And, um, you know, I, I if I'm going to, if our generation is going to be that generation, then uh, it's important to have that framework kind of in place to start thinking about what are our alternatives to the way that we're doing things today. So, well, I, I think another thing that, that ties in with all of these things that's, that's been really beneficial and really important is the use of technology. Like, of course, the digital world in many ways, as we've discussed, has driven us, you know, back to handmaking because we've become so disconnected from that. But at the same time, it's also the, the platform that we can use to connect and share that information with each other. And, and not only to learn these skills ourselves, but also to showcase what goes into these things. So even if not every person is gonna run out and become a lace maker and like, you know, really learn and understand what that means um, and what goes into each piece, they can watch video content about lace making now and it's really accessible, which is, you know, which is very cool. And I do think that Gen Z in particular has done, a, has figured out how to balance these things in a really natural way um, where there's almost like a, I, there's almost like a folk community culture of like TikTok and all these sorts of plat social media platforms where people are really connecting and sharing this vital information. So, you know, I think, I, I feel really positive, actually, despite despite everything for, you know, the, the next generation. Yeah, like I said, <laughs> um, the fact that so many of our listeners have been younger has been really uh, eye opening to me. I've realized it, we get messages like every day about people asking farm stuff or ecology stuff or foraging stuff. And um, it's almost always somebody under the age of 20. And I'm just like in awe that they're this motivated because when I was their age, I was not doing anything useful. <laughs> and uh, it, it's really good. It's it's awesome to see it. Th you speak about like the Internet. And I think about like I was just talking about like my sheep. And when I was learning how to shear sheep, I went on YouTube and watched. And like the one video that actually made it make sense and made it like accessible was like this 70 year old Irish person who I could barely understand. But you could tell they'd been doing it for like 60 of those 70 years and they like just grabbed the sheep by the horns and just threw them on the ground and i was like oh that's how you do it and um you know it, it gives even younger people access to a lot of that ancestral knowledge that has been passed down even if it's not from their own community just from the global community absolutely and and i think that the younger generation also has an appreciation for the value of these skills which is something that people like my own age and and older sometimes don't recognize or take for granted, not across the board, of course, but, you know, things like shearing sheep. And I studied fiber art. So people 
would often ask me, you know, what are you doing with that? Like, you're going to learn how to shear a sheep and you're going to learn how to do macrame. Well, you know, there's a lot of really in incredibly beneficial skills for your brain and for fine motor skills that come out of these things. And there's, there's a lot of ways that there are a lot of things that these can teach you, not just like hand co eye coordination and patience, but, you know, in, in a much larger way to connect with history and, and with your own body, you know, um, and that's true for all different sort of hands-on things. So I think also seeing that this really resonates with younger people um, is, is very cool. Yeah. And Kara's going to have to listen to us fawn over her generation. Um, <laughs> Sorry, Kara. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I, you know, it, you know, it speaks to the fact that, you know, as humans, this is what we're meant to do. We're supposed to work with our hands. You know, we're we're biologically engineered to go and do things every day, not sit at a computer. And I think the generation, our generation, we grew up as technology was evolving. And we uh, even I, my, I was talking to my wife about this earlier, that there's some new research that they're actually trying to split up the millennial generation between um, like the early 80s and the early 90s and then over the early 90s, because if you were born in the 80s, you're the how quickly technology changed what somebody that was born in 85 or 88, they almost have nothing in relationship to somebody that was born in 95 it was a totally different world. I think that was a very quick transition that happened from that period to where we are now. And folks growing up now, their relationship with technology is so significantly different. It's, it's intrinsic in the way they look at the world. But it's not fulfilling in the way we looked at it because of the fact that it was a, a replacement for a lot of things that we were doing because it was new and, um, you know, it seemed infinite in what it could offer us. Yeah. As an elder millennial, I definitely wrote letters to my friends when I was growing up before we had email. So I remember the, the sort of before times. And it's sad when you look at, you know, how going back to like the fashion industry and production in the 90s, the majority of not, I don't want to say the majority, I don't know the exact statistics, so don't quote me, but a large percentage of the clothing that people wore in the U.S. was made in the U.S., you know, and that's hard to believe. So it's hard to believe that 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 was that that was the majority mm -hmm. of what was made, because now, you know, as many fashion designers will tell you, and they want to produce in the U.S., but there just isn't the capacity. And we've lost a lot of the skill of making these things, you know, even in industrial methods like machine lace has a lot of the U.S. factories have closed almost, I think, down to maybe there's one left. Um, and this was a very high-end skilled work that took 10 years of apprenticeship to be able to do. And we just don't have this kind of skill set anymore. So I think more people are starting to build their own production facilities, hopefully, you know, ethically and that sort of thing. But it's it's crazy to think how much things shifted in, in the last 30 years. And like, even for me, like I have, I'm going to bring up my sheep again. But like, if you shear them, and you're like, Oh, well, I don't know how to spin. So I'll sell it. Um, you you have to pretty much give it away. It has no value because there's nobody that can use it. Uh, and that speaks to the fact that that infrastructure just simply isn't there. Wow. Wow. I First of all, please always talk about your sheep because I am very excited. I that would be my dream, but at the moment I'm tied to New York City, so no sheep for me. But um, I think that that's great. Well, you know, maybe some some crafty people or um, lace makers that listen to this podcast will get in touch with you now and with interest in your fiber, or maybe Kara. <laughs> I can send you some uh, some sheep wool. <laughs> Unspun because he's not unspun because he doesn't know what a spinning yeah. wheel yeah, is. I, yeah, I'm in Massachusetts. I actually have so. a spinning wheel. I've been 
Wait, you're you're in Massachusetts? Yeah, we're, yeah. we're over towards Cape Cod. Oh, okay, very so far away from where I am. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, if you ever want to come to the beach, but <laughs> um, but actually, like if if honestly, I I'd be really interested in trying it. I've I've been trying to learn how to spin myself. Like I have I from my adventures um this this past year when I was meeting all these angora rabbit farmers, I actually ended up getting two angora rabbits of my own. So I've been slowly working my way up the fiber ladder and trying to get better at spinning because angora rabbits are like at the top of it. It's, it's so hard to spin. It's, it's crazy. So for now, I've just been collecting all of their fiber in little bags and I'm waiting for when I get really good at spinning to spin it. But so anything to practice with, <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm fine with. <laughs> yeah, I will definitely get some over to you. And I'm still amazed at how- <laughs> I have to go trim them this week, actually, this upcoming week. They're like- Is that they're... a pre-shear shear? No, their wool is starting to like fall out because it, they nat- Icelandics actually naturally lose their wool mm-hmm. um, because they're still oh, like wow. kind of wild. But mm. then you usually have to sh- shear them again in the late summer anyway. So Sounds fun. Yeah. The more you know. <laughs> well, this conversation has been enlightening because, um, again, with this podcast, we do talk a lot about sustainability and everything that we've talked about in this conversation sort of leads to the fact that, you know, lacemaking is time and labor intensive and it's a handmade craft and skill that it, it's nothing short of art is what it is but it seems like it still can be sustainable like you said if it's done in a way that's done collectively to produce the pieces that are worth it if those pieces can be mended and also practical and and practical right right and it seems like it still is it seems like it's uh it's an older craft that maybe hasn't gone by the wayside but i will say it's um sort of experiencing a revival now and it seems like it's 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 sustainable to the point where it's, it's not going anywhere anytime soon. It just, it, it's a matter of people like yourselves, um, taking an interest in it and pushing it to see what it can do and how it can stay, uh, relevant, not only in fashion, but in, in crafts for, for hobbyists and, um, anybody who's just curious about where things come from. Uh, do you guys have any other questions for us or anything you wanted to talk about that we didn't bring up? Well, I will add that, you know, with all my talk of, um, you know, specializing in a particular skill and and that it's, you know, so that we can all make things more accessible. I'm such a dabbler and I want to learn how to do everything. So um, I think that that it's understandable that it's hard for people to to focus so much on one skill when Mm -hmm. there's so many cool things to learn out there. Um, Now I want to raise Icelandic sheep. Come hang out. I will show you how to shear a sheep. (laughs) That sounds like an adventure. Yeah, thank you guys so much. This is really interesting. Oh, wait, before we take off, if people want to learn more um, about the Brooklyn Lace Guild, where can they go to learn more about um, what the work you guys are doing and how to get involved? You can find us on our website at brooklynlaceguild.com, where we have information about being uh, becoming a member. Um, we are very affordable, only $15 a year to join. And we have membership across the U.S. now that we've gone digital and we meet on Zoom each month. Um, but we will hopefully resume in-person events in New York City starting later this year. You can also follow us on Instagram at Brooklyn Lace Guild. As always, if you enjoyed the episode, please give us a review on iTunes, which heavily impacts our outreach to new listeners and helps us bring on new and exciting guests. We appreciate your support, and we hope you enjoyed this conversation. This is Elliot and Andy with the Poor Pearls Almanac. Say bye, Andy. Bye. Bye.